0: So first I want to tell a story. This may be a story that you understand historically, metaphorically, or mythologically. Um, It's a story of the four heavenly messengers. And I love this story because it really brings me back to the reality of life. 2,600 years ago, in a small kingdom of the Shakyas in the foothills of the Himalayas near what is now the border of Nepal and India in the town of Lumbini, a young prince was born and the king named this prince Siddhartha. It meant he whose wishes are fulfilled. And at the time of his birth there were wise men who foretold that this baby would become either a world monarch or a Buddha, a fully awakened being, who had the full potential in life to lead many people into uh, liberation. But the king wanted an heir to his throne, and he did everything possible to assure that He contrived to surround Siddhartha with pleasures of all kinds, luxuries, delights, no expense was spared in his upbringing. And the king did his best to keep Siddhartha away from everything that was unpleasant, everything that was disagreeable, anything that caused any unhappiness, all kinds of suffering he tried to keep him away from. So Siddhartha grew up. He had one of those typical marriages, arranged marriages, had a beautiful wife. He lived in three palaces, one for each season the hot season, the cold season, the rainy season. Had everything you could imagine and more. All the pleasures around him. But he began to wonder, he began to get curious about what side is. What is outside of this royalty? What is outside of this total comfort? What is outside of this, these palaces that he is so protected in? He had not seen anything outside of that. And it's said that Chana, his charioteer, was actually one of his teachers when he was younger because he brought him, he took him outside of the palace walls beyond the boundaries of all the royal palace grounds and everything that was beautiful. Siddhartha's mother and father dreaded this moment. It was a sign of the prophecy unfolding. So the king was determined to cover up everything disagreeable when, when he knew Siddhartha was going to leave outside of the palace. He ordered beggars, the infirm, the aged, to be hidden away, not to be shown. He had the roads strewn with perfumed flowers, and he made sure that only the young and beautiful and able-bodied were allowed in the streets. All preparations were taken to cover up the unpleasant uh, experiences that Siddhartha might have by his powerful father it said. But the Buddha-to-be's fate was more powerful. The next day Siddhartha and Chana, his charioteer, were off to the village. Cool breeze, mountains rising behind him, sun rising, golden sky. They reached the village and garlands and flowers were strewn about. Crowds were there, all having the face of happiness, Children were laughing, all by the order of the king, it said in this either true or mythological story. And out of nowhere, when they got to the boundary lines of the village, out of nowhere the first heavenly messenger appeared, suddenly, like a a vision, wrinkled, toothless, old man appeared, bent twisted, blind, a pitiful sight. And then the apparition was gone all of a sudden. It was like a cloud that came, made a formation, and the Buddha-to-be saw that. So Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, and the Bodhisattva-to-be, because he hadn't taken the Bodhisattva. Oh yes, he had taken the Bodhisattva vows in a previous life, that's right. So Siddhartha and this bodhisattva, who was a bodhisattva, but didn't really know it yet consciously, he asked Chana, what was that? He had never seen anything like that before. And Chana answered, sire, that is an old man. And uh, Siddhartha said, I've never seen anything like that before. The skin was all you know, not tight and smooth, (coughs) wrinkled. The hair was either there or all white, or gone. And there wasn't a beautiful, robust body. It was very weak. And um, he asked Chana, will this happen to my body? And Chana said, yes, sire, that will happen to your body. So he went on, and there was another apparition, like a cloud appearing out of nowhere, and um, a sick man staggering with sweat, wild-eyed, thin, coughing up, feverish, tormented. And the Buddha-to-be never saw anything like that before. This was sickness showing up, where the first heavenly messenger was old age. Now this was the heavenly messenger of sickness. And the Buddha-to-be said, was he born like this? And Chana said, no, sire, this is what happens in life. Sometimes bodies, minds get sick. And the Buddha-to-be said, well, can't we always all be healthy? And Chana said, no, it happens like this to all beings. So they went on, and then there was a person lying still on a wooden board, being carried by people. Carried to a place where there was a fire burning, a bed of fire burning. And all around him were people, all around this person, on, laying still on this board, were people wailing and crying. And um, this person on this board was not moving. So Siddhartha said, "Why are they crying? He's only asleep." And uh, Channa said, "No, this man is dead. His life is gone, and now his body is um, not uh, functioning anymore. Neither is his conscious mind. So this man is dead." And the Buddha to be asked, "Will this happen to me?" And Chana answered, yes, sire, this happens to all beings. And so this was the apparition, the heavenly messenger of death, the third heavenly messenger. So they continued on, on their journey outside of the palace walls, outside of everything controlled and beautiful. And then a Siddhartha saw a very peaceful mendicant monk, just wandering through the forest, who had a deeply peaceful gaze in his eyes, a peaceful gait in his walk, and he had a nobility to his being. This was the last heavenly messenger. And so the Buddha-to-be was awakened to the fact that it's possible to have all this confusion and this turmoil around you, but within you, You can be in the midst of that and be peaceful and have the sense of nobility as you walk through this old age, sickness, and death. So the four heavenly messengers connected the prince to his countless previous lifetimes of practice and prompted in him a sense of deep inquiry and prompted in him a a deep sense of needing to understand The truth of life. So he began in his inquiry what is the nature of being human? What is the nature of this body and mind? It can't always be that we just cover it up with uh, our clothes and we hide everything that's, you know, sick or ailing or aging. What is the cause of this kind of suffering? because it was the first time in that lifetime that he was exposed so clearly to these heavenly messengers. Is there an end to this suffering? What leads to the end of suffering? What leads to genuine peace and happiness in the midst of this reality of life, old age, sickness, death? and These were the four questions that he asked that became the Four Noble Truths. So he had this sense of urgency, this samvega, this spiritual urgency, so he could go beyond this understanding of what he thought life should be, and that it should be like that. And everything about people around him were fighting the truth of life and really not living in alignment with how things really are. So he began the final part of his journey, and this is when his deepest commitment to know the truth was born, it said, when he began to face these four heavenly messengers, old age, sickness, death, and the possibility to be within oneself beyond all of that. So we're not... Suffering. We're not suffering in a way that depletes us, that causes us a kind of weakness to be in life. So each one of us has our own stories, our own heavenly messengers, or maybe they're not so heavenly. And um, this is what brings us to the practice, whether sometimes we know it or not consciously. When, in the Dharma, we go about asking people, what brought you here? What brought you to a retreat? What brought you to wanting to come to understand life in this way? And usually, the answer is suffering, some kind of suffering of life, of a a broken heart, or something that goes on in the body with oneself, or somebody else. And um, you know what the story is for you, for each one of you. So when these messengers come to us, they're a call to our awakening. And that's what it was for the Buddha. A call to his awakening in that life as a Buddha. Gotama Buddha. Our story or messengers may not be exactly the same. I mean, it's quite different. we I don't think any of us were born into royalty. Um, if you were, I'm sorry that I'm <laughs> not <laughs> giving you any uh, recognition for that. <laughs> but we have uh, the same kind of... In, in some ways, we have the same kind of intensity about our relationship to life. Not intensity in a negative sense, but intensity in, in kind of a positive sense, that it kind of forced us open to see What are we doing here in this life? What's our life really about? It's not just about survival. Somehow we all know that. It's about going beyond that so we can be strong in ourselves and possibly help a few others on the path. So in our lives, and more subtly, deep in retreat, when all the props that we have in our lives and diversions are not here anymore, Um, They're not necessarily taken from us, but this is the nature of a retreat where we come here and we put everything aside as much as we can for the time being and we come face to face with the realities of life, with what's underneath the, um, the, the kind of shield that we have inside that shields us from the places of our deep suffering underneath our deep vulnerability. And this shield is our busyness in life. It's our over-responsibility. It's our um, attachment to whatever. And not giving ourselves enough time to really explore. But here we are doing that. So it's a different way of confronting the first noble truth being in this kind of atmosphere, this kind of uh, retreat. It's interesting to note that the Buddha-to-be ventured beyond his familiar terrain. And that's what we're doing here. We're venturing beyond the terrain that's familiar to us, the everyday stuff of life. And we're facing things in life that we may get a glimpse of once in a while, but sometimes we we really can't go there because we've got things to face. We've got children to raise and responsibilities to other people and paying the bills and all of that. And um, Sometimes that's a shield that keeps us from going more deeply into the vulnerabilities that we are really feeling every day but we're not feeling it so closely. So here um, we have the courage like the Buddha to be has had the courage, or we have, you know, different levels of courage, each one of us, where the conditions are present for us to explore and to discover what's underneath this shield of busyness and the shield of um, kind of over responsibility that we have sometimes to see for ourselves, what is this first noble truth, this, what we call this vulnerability to all of life. And we have, uh, because of the conditions of, of safety that we have here, and things are done for us so we don't have to do a whole lot, we have our yogi jobs, but we're just facing ourselves all the time. So hopefully we have this willingness and this intention to see what's underneath and to really touch base with the inner qualities that are being strengthened to face what's there. And we have the time and the courage to take a look at. So what's so interesting is that Siddhartha, the Bodhisattva and Buddha-to-be, was already endowed with a lot of compassion. And we are, too, endowed with that compassion. It's just a matter of developing it and um, growing that potentiality in us. He was endowed with a certain amount of faith to go beyond what he already understood, what he already knew. And if your intention to do that isn't conscious yet, it's good to get that more and more conscious that if you do, if you can admit it, that you do have this intention to go beyond what you already know. And um, it's really important because sometimes we just stay smug in what we know already and we're not willing to be vulnerable and go to places where it's really hard to do, for example, a new practice. And open to, you know, everything that is that makes up this mind, mind-body continuum. You know, it's it's more comfortable to stay with what we have already known. So we do have to have this sense of curiosity and exploration, and the courage of compassion to do that, and the faith to do that to be willing to go beyond what we already know. Because if we're not that liberated yet, I know all of us are, little by little, becoming more liberated from greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, It's because we need to understand something that we don't fully understand yet. Or we need to take it in and integrate it into our lives in another way So getting curious about what's beyond the boundaries of what we already know is a really important thing. I like what Albert Einstein said about that. It's not a matter of being more gifted. It's a matter of being more curious and maybe more patient, he said. So how can we do that, get more curious? This is what our journey to awakening is all about. And it is a journey. It doesn't happen, you know, in one retreat or in it's, it's one... Over, it's over lifetimes if you can think that long. Um, these are T.S. Eliot's thoughts, that so often we expect the spiritual journey will lead us to some wonderful place, to something very different than what we're experiencing now, and most people think it's more pleasant. <laughs> Yet the irony is, or it's a cosmic joke, that it simply leads us back to ourselves, to the present moment, to the riches that have always been within, to be discovered, long covered up by the stuff of life. So in some ways we can be heartened by the fact where it's not that far away. It's pretty close by and it's reachable. And uh, we really have to have the willingness to go there, to that that place unknown is just right here, it's underneath this kind of shield that we've held to protect us, because maybe we, we didn't know that we had enough courage to open to it, but we really do. So th- now I'm quoting T.S. Eliot, those were um, a kind of rewriting of his thoughts, what I just imparted to you. But he says, and this is a quote, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know that place for the first time. So we all have been born, come into this life with enormous hidden wealth like the Buddha. But his wealth you know, obviously was outside uh, of him. Uh, but he had this enormous hidden wealth inside, a kindness of heart, the ability for clarity in the mind, natural compassion, a faith that maybe be maybe is kind of a one step forward, that enough faith for just that. But at least there's that. And it leads, it's onward leading. So we're all here because we've gotten in touch with this faith to open to that suffering, to open to the vulnerability. We have that curiosity, that sense of exploration. And maybe we're inspired because it's a sacred calling for all of us. Um, it may be very a very practical thing for many of us, but it's really quite sacred. Maybe we've seen the flickering of light of wisdom first in someone else, and then it inspires us to look inward to ourselves. And that doesn't take much. You know, it it really, it just takes one moment at a time. One moment at a time. Um, One time I asked my my eldest grandchild, who's about 24 right now, Her name is Shalia, and it's okay for me to say this to you. She said, I said, you're so smart, Shalia, when she was about six years old. How'd you get so smart? And she said, Nana, you got it too. (laughs) And I thought, oh yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes out of the mouth of babes sometimes. (laughs) So some, I mean, that's... That's the wise one that appeared to me in my life, you know, at that time. There were a lot of other people, but the children were good ones, too. They gave good messages to us. So something we've heard or seen beckons us to keep us following what calls us on our journey to awakening. And, um, you know, it's one little... Nugget at a time, one little gem at a time. I mean, who would come back to all this suffering that we have in sitting <laughs> if you didn't have those little nuggets? That I mean, it's really hard to. When you leave a sitting, it's like, why did I go into that room? You know, sometimes <laughs> it's like that. I mean, I may have this look of you know, utter. I'm just sitting here, and there's there's a lot going in this mind and heart. <laughs> And, you know, I have my moments, so maybe something we've heard or seen beckons us and that's what brings us back, like that, that little um, saying that someone here said they heard from one place or another, and, okay, that's what brings me back to know, maybe I can do it too. So maybe it's that we're fed up with life. <laughs> Maybe it's that part, right? Or maybe that's that part and the nuggets, too. Suffering urges us to find deeper meaning. It's, um, they say that the proximate cause for compassion to arise is suffering. It's also that curiosity. It's also some of us want to make a difference in the world. You know, we're bodhicitta-inspired. We want to help. We want to do whatever we can for the benefit of all beings. Sometimes some um, people say to me, a few times in my yogi and teaching life, or more like several times, people have said to me, I couldn't do that sitting for myself, but I could do it for someone else. I'm sitting here for so-and-so. I dedicate this sitting to so-and-so. And then it allows us to be with whatever comes up, for the benefit of another being, for the benefit of all beings. So this is what brings me to the ecology of compassion and why that's important in our lives. Because that's what helps us to face this vulnerability. If it weren't for compassion it would be really hard to open to that first noble truth. So um, I'll say some things here in, in this talk and then uh, another talk of of what how compassion really opens us to wisdom. But from what I hear and see in the communities I uh, walk through and within, there is this growing sense of urgency that I feel from most, or if not all of you, to help and to do what we can. Not, we're not just here for ourselves, but we want to offer our gifts in whatever small way to the people around us. Our family, you know, you, we think of the children when we get to a certain age, what are they going to carry on? To touch the world which is increasing in complexity and speed, to touch the world with slowness, with slowing down, with the kindness, with the simplicity. And um, that's a really important thing. You know, can we inspire people around us to, to do that, to slow down. Just to be simply kind. So just as strong, there's this growing spiritual urgency to go within. And that's why we're all here. Because we do have this urgency to be quiet now and to um, we do the, you know fast going around stuff, pressing the button, kind of life. and now we're going to balance it out with the slowing down and being in retreat. Very wise thing to do. So we want to go deep within to that place where we're not projecting our reactivity out there. But we can be still and quiet and see what we're doing out there in the world because we can see what happens habitually in here on the sitting cushion. that's Or out there walking or eating. This is what's so important about what we do here. That we actually have a clear view of how it is. And we're not rushing around covering it up with things to do, our to-do list. Um, I'm going to read to you um, a quote from this has been a really important quote to me and in the Dharma talks I give from Agnes Uh, She's she wrote this article for the Shambhala Sun a long time ago she said I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life so what would it be to see this life just as it is, without the projections and the transference we put out there all the time? What would it be? Sometimes, you know, I'm in life and in different groups in my community, in different Dharma groups, and I'll sit there quietly and say, wow, this world is made up of a lot of thoughts of how people are seeing how it should be. <laughs> and it's just that we live in this world of projection and transference all the time. And it just boggles my mind sometimes, can I just hear a bird sing? Just that. You know, is it possible to just feel my footstep on the ground? Just that. It's it becomes so sacred the real simple things of life to just take you know, that miso soup in my mouth, and really taste the miso, or the tofu, or whatever it is. So we discover uh, the forces of the mind and the heart that create, that are in this inner terrain, that create the outer terrain. And sometimes it makes me want to be silent a lot in life because I'm just saying how I want it to be or how I think it should be. or You know, I'm just adding that kind of concept out there all the time. That's why it's so nice to be with children. I mean, they, they see the simple things and they tell you about it. So what are the inner habitual forces that create an ecology that serves peace and harmony deep, deep within, can we recognize that, that this is what our practice is asking of us? What habitual forces create an ecology of disharmony, of chaos, of fear, of hatred, of unhealthy attachment? So we're seeing both. What leads to unhappiness? What leads to peace and happiness? And this needs to be really clear to us. That's why we're sitting here and listening. We're doing this deep listening to ourselves. Can we be clear about this so that they're recognized more swiftly, relinquished when they're not useful, and nourished when they're useful? So this is part of you know, living in harmony. It's part of following the precepts. Because without doing this quiet inner practice, investigating this inner life, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the outer landscape if we don't know the inner landscape. We can never hope to touch the world with true kindness if we don't have that deep kindness for ourselves to really be ourselves, to really know ourselves completely. So we may not radically change the world with this kind of thing, but we can change the world around us in some ways. We can be a light, a benefit to those around us. But we can change inwardly. That's a real possibility. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said about compassion that it is inner disarmament. It's not disarming all the bombs, atomic bombs, in this world that's supposed to be able to blow up this world uh, various, many times. But he says this disarmament, inner disarmament, is the one that's really important that we can do for ourselves. Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world totally disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And that can be very powerful in the world. Usually, compassion is thought of in terms of helping or saving others, facing the suffering out there, and acting out there, doing something about what's going on out there. And that's true and very important. But then we all together miss a first step, and that's going in a tender-hearted way, with a lot of care and willingness, facing what's happening in here to develop the courage to open to that truth of suffering in our own hearts. Really hard to do. And most of us would say, hey, I got this down, I know what suffering is. And I think we do. But the question is, do we know how to open to it with a sense of balance? with a sense of courage, with a sense of that equanimity thats not that doesn't give another reactivity to ourselves so that we can really see and feel the places of hurt or shame or confusion or anger and not shift it to blaming out there. So what is compassion? Compassion is said to result from Cultivating the unconditional care of loving kindness, and turning it specifically towards suffering. So, when loving kindness turns towards suffering, it turns into compassion. One of my teachers, Seda Upandita, um, would always use the word. Every time I heard him, he would use the word metta in connection with karuna. He would say metta karuna, because he said even you may not have loving kindness, but you might feel it as compassion when you feel your connection with somebody. So we can see sometimes when we're doing our metta practice in here that something comes up with somebody and right away we tune into some sort of turmoil they're going through with their bodies, with their minds. with their job or, or their family, and right away we feel that heartfelt connection and that is loving-kindness that turned to compassion. So it doesn't matter that much, you know, we can we can put metta-karuna together in, in one practice. So in the ancient texts, compassion is described as a quivering of the heart in relationship to all pain to pain inwardly, to pain in life, to the difficulties we have. It's this aliveness, this quivering is this aliveness, this vividness of experiencing the vividness of an unfiltered life. And it, it doesn't lay a veneer of denial over it, like, or anger over it, or righteous indignation, or idealism on top of what we think reality should be. It doesn't lay, that's delusion, when we lay a veneer of something over uh, the suffering of the world. When we're angry about it, or there's righteous indignation, or idealism. I see that happening in Burma with the Rohingyas. It's hard to look inside, so it's easy to blame someone for it. But we face the rawness of our inner world. And then we can face the outer world with more courage. So compassion uh, makes the hearts of the good quiver when others are afflicted with pain. That comes from the ancient texts. It makes the hearts of the good quiver. Its direct opposite is cruelty. When, we, when we're open to suffering, and it's really hard for us to take, we can't open to compassion. We just are cruel, we blame others, or we push it away. Or another cruelty is ignoring it. That's, that's a very hurtful cruelty, to ignore somebody's suffering, to just turn away from it and say, it's your karma, you have to take care of it. That's really cruel. The indirect opposite is grief and its attachment to sadness. It's when we're so identified with sadness that we can't get beyond the grief. There is a healthy grief that's rolling along that's helping us get more healthy in life, Um, helping us face what we need to face and kind of overcome that pain we're going through in relationship to maybe somebody's uh, loss of somebody in our lives. There is a healthy grief, but there's a grief that keeps us lost in it when we're identified with it. Compassion helps us to stay open to that rawness with tenderness, with care, and to to be okay to be tender, to be okay, to cry, to shed tears, uh, to face what we have been born into in this life. Not just in terms of family and cultural challenges, uh, but facing racism and the differences that uh, we have with one another. Karmic conditioning, facing uh, all the isms of life. But we're opening to the fact of suffering in its greater universal sense. We're opening to the first noble truth, which is dukkha-satcha. And some people translate that to say, life is suffering. Well, a very poor translation and nothing that would attract people to the Dharma (laughs) <laughs> dukkha means suffering and Sacha means the truth. So it simply means there is the truth of suffering. That's how it is. There is a truth of suffering so we kind of start our spiritual life knowing that because then we know, oh that's what we're going to open to. And then the second noble truth is that there is a cause of suffering and then we learn to discover that. I'm not going to go through that now. And there is an end to suffering. And there is a path to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. I love the Buddha's teachings because he said it like it is. It wasn't like the first thing he said was, I had to reach this very high place in life. It was like he was speaking to where I am right now. and that was reality to me. Trungpa Rinpoche, who's a great Tibetan teacher of many, and of Pema Chodron too, said, compassion is a force that supports us in experiencing reality with a noble heart. So, you know, I like the word noble because courageous um, implies a lot of things, like I'm going to have to face a lot of suffering. But noble is... A really beautiful word. So there is a reality, there is a reality of old age, sickness, and death in ourselves and in others. That's what we're born into. When we ask, what is the cause of death? I mean, some people will go back to it's this disease or that something or other accident. <coughs> what is the cause of death? Birth. Birth is the cause of death. (coughs) Someone anonymous said, boldly and quite to the point, life is a sexually transmitted degenerative disease which is always fatal. (laughs) I'm still trying to find the author of that. Nowadays, it isn't always sexually transmitted, though. (laughs) I just realized that. (laughs) Um, To realize that life isn't secure as we are opening to the insecurity, the vulnerability of life, isn't the, the thing we want to do ideally in a spiritual path, but it's a thing we must do because you can't go around it or over it. You you just you really have to go through it. I love what Helen Keller said, that security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children have it, have it as a whole. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So it takes this exploration to, to go through it. So as we experience and examine our lives very deeply and more closely in this vividness, we directly experience this vulnerability of the First Noble Truth. That everything, and and I'll get into this, the three universal characteristics more, but that everything is moving and changing constantly. Constantly, constantly. I mean, the moment I was, you know, oftentimes I, I just sit somewhere, be somewhere and realize that moment that I walked into the door is absolutely gone. Every single moment before this moment is gone. Where did it go? It's all just changing and now this moment when I clap my hands, that was gone. That is gone. It's like amazing to me it may help, that kind of sense of that vulnerability moment to moment may help me face my own death in a better way. It may help me face the death of loved ones around me in a better way. It may, but it does still really hurt. You know, it, it, it's painful to face that. Just because I said that, that it's gone, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna face my own death or someone else's in that way. But that realization to me is really, really deep. So the totality, the immensity, the enormity of change and constant change on every level, on the outer landscape and on the inner landscape, is a very big truth. And we're learning that moment by moment by moment here. And we're grokking that moment by moment by moment. The outer landscape of all the elements of earth, air, water, and fire constantly changing. It's amazing to me how um, the people who talk about the weather are so precise. Like uh, On this one weather app I have it says that at some particular time, in Castle Rock, it's going to rain. I mean, how do they figure... they have all these ways of measuring things, how they can figure it out, and most of the time it's true, you know. Um, It's constantly changing and we we really can't prophesize anything. Like Steve would say, you know, we never know when that tsunami is going to come. So the inner landscape also, thoughts, feelings, emotions, mental states, the knowing of all that, changing all the time. Experiences of the body, earth, air, water, fire that comprise the body, always changing all the time. We need a great deal of courage to not get afraid of that. Sometimes when people open to that level of change, it's very scary. So, we need a skill set and to remain open to seeing clearly, without closing down, without running away, turning away, without judging, without criticizing. We need a way where we're able to open to what's happening with compassion, more skillfully, so we can do what is needed around us in the world immediately around us, or if we're doing work on a global level more, it's very um, freeing to be able to have compassion, to do that. It's a feeling of closeness with a sense of responsibility. So we can get close to the feeling of suffering in the world and then will come a sense of responsibility to do something about it. So we're developing this skill set, immeasurably helpful in our practice here. And it has to be part and parcel of our practice or else it's not possible to live this life as fully as we can. Some people ask, how come compassion isn't one of the ten paramis? or um, it isn't in the precepts, you know, per se, just like that. It's because the precepts were developed and the paramis were developed, were pointed out because of compassion. It was a proximate cause for all of those to be pointed out. So this aliveness, this quivering of the heart, helps my heart not be imprisoned in fear. And sometimes it is, you know. I get moments of fear, of course. But when we know that that fear is, it's not liable to be there every moment. You know, we have this deep sense that it's not there in a solid sense. It doesn't make up really what I call this body mind continuum. It's something just passing by. But when it's there, it's scary, it's hard to be with. And I'm more truthful with sometimes I'm imprisoned in fear and sometimes I'm not. And that's the way it is. I tried to reflect back on when I was first consciously um, feeling that awakeness, that aliveness, that ability to open to that rawness of life. And um, this is a time when I was in my 20s, my early 20s. I'm going to tell us a, st- a story of long ago. <laughs> but my story, it's not about me. It's not important about me. It's about the principles of this theme of compassion that we're all opening to. So by the age of 21, I had two children. And I'd returned to live. In my mother country of the Philippines, and uh, it's a third world country, although it's become very, very modern, and but still has immense poverty. And there are islands in the Philippines. There's um, seven thousand islands, I think. A lot of islands. Some are really small. You know, there's a place where it's called Hundred Islands, and an island is as big as this room. Um, and where places where they still live in kind of a backwards way. Backwards meaning, you know, they don't have transportation or communications, uh, cell phones, and they take water from a river and things like that. So I went back to that country, and I was, I was born into um, a family that came from the northern part of the Philippines, very poor part of the Philippines, and um, and now I was married into wealth and into power, po- political power. It, that's a story in itself, and I didn't choose that; it was sort of chosen for me, and I went along with it. And so, I went there. From a place of living in the projects of San Francisco <coughs> um, and East Palo Alto and if you don't know that place in in the Bay Area it's a, a it was a very low income place when I lived there and I enjoyed so much wealth that I felt guilty about it and I had so much suffering around me it was like an avalanche of suffering that I was married into because I would be um, living in this wealth and when we'd come to a stop sign I'd be in this car with a driver and sitting in the back seat and someone who assisted me during the day. And we'd stop at a stop sign and all these children would come around trying to put their hands in, maybe I had the window open a little bit, and they wanted something. And the moment I would grab some centavos from my uh, purse and try to put it outside my hand would get all pulled and scratched up because they really wanted that. And sometimes there'd be children carrying little infants, you know, and saying, you know, help me, help me, like that. And there was all kinds of poverty and suffering around. And my heart got really numb. And it didn't feel alive at that time. It was like, whoa, this is way too much. I wasn't born into that kind of suffering. So I was striking out with my thoughts inside about the political situation and why there's so many rich people and then there's so many poor people. There's just kind of a, a small um, you know, level of rich narrow level of rich and then so many poor people. So I was in a political family and just hated politics. Um, and it was awful. Um, Marcos was in power and the family I was married into was in the opposition. So it was very difficult. And I was drowning in sorrow because I wasn't really that happy. and. I felt paralyzed and closed down by it. But then a nurse came to help me. Um, her name was Leticia, she's a widow, and she helped me take care of my two children, and I was um, burying my third ch- child then. She had six children, and those six children were in an orphanage in Manila because she had to go to work, and she left her children in the orphanage. Um, when she worked, and then on, uh, she had days off where she went there, to the orphanage, and then she helped in the orphanage. She was actually a nurse, a registered nurse, but um, you know they didn't have much work, so they worked for families. And so one day um, I asked her if I could go to the orphanage with her. And I wanted to visit her children and see what was happening in that orphanage. And so she took me there, and it's on a small island. It's a Catholic orphanage on a small island in part of Manila, uh, near the bay. And um, they had a turnstile where were if there were mothers who gave birth to their children and they couldn't take care of their children, they put their children on this turnstile and they would ring the bell and then the, they'd turn the, the, um, the thing around and then the nuns would come and they'd take the children. And so they took as many as they could and then they you know brought them to other places where the nuns could take care of them. And so it really just tore my heart apart because I I was raised in a fairly poor family but we always had something to eat and you know it, it was pretty good you know compared to those uh, sit, to that situation. So my heart just kind of um, melted around all of that. And um, I got really close to what my heart was feeling when I was, I would go and take care of those little orphans. And some were cherubs and some were really skinny and some had some diseases and some were happy and some were crying all the time. There was, there's just, just all kinds, and it made me feel helpful that I could do something and, um, you know, and give, to, give to that place, food, bags of rice, etc. So I, in order to face that outward appearance of suffering, I really had to face what was going on inwardly, because there was no way that it, I would just be you know, forcing my own projections on, on what was around me. So the fear of opening to it was really great. There was a lot of outrage about what was going on around me, uh, why there was such a divide between the rich and the poor, and I was part of that. So I started feeling, when I was opening to everything, I started feeling more alive and less numb, less dead inside, more open to the suffering in myself and the suffering in the world and it really helped me to have the wherewithal to say i've got to look at what's going on in here it was really hard i'm sort of like a natural mother i had two children young i was bearing my third one and uh, to just see all these children with no mother but lovely nuns to be around and that they probably had a better fate there than with their natural mothers. So that compassion helped me stop fighting what was in here. Stop fighting the truth that was in here and have the courage to lead into life with some courage and not pity. for, Not the kind of pity where you feel above somebody, but that kind of pity that kind of locks you into sadness. So it was fulfilling to help, you know, in some way. I wasn't trying to save anyone or save the world. I was just trying to do the little bit I could to have a sense of connection with everything that goes on in the Philippines. Um, So I became uh, aware of my spiritual urgency at that time. It was that, going to that place you know, and, and just seeing the nuns that would face everything with, that was, their, that was what they did. Um, so I was reminded of Mother Teresa, one of my heroines. Um, where well, she wasn't out to save the world. She just wanted to help one person at a time. The person in front of her, you know, the person. She went out and found a person who needed help, a dying person, and helped that person. Or children. I went to visit her nunnery in, um, in Calcutta one time and it was really lovely to meet all the nuns there and see what they were doing from the time Mother Teresa opened that orphanage. So what happened, as William Wordsworth said, um, a deep distress hath humanized my soul. And so I felt that suffering just made me more human. You know, made me connected to the humanness of life. And so this is what it can be for us in in our practice when we can actually be humanized by our suffering. When we can come to our knees somehow and face the things that we need to face. Face some the love that we have in our hearts and have that be unconditional. So I'd like to end this part. If I can find it. (laughs) Oh, here it is. First, a little story about how um, One time I went to see Sayadaw Upandita. This is a story I often tell. It makes a good point. And um, I wasn't going into practice with him, but I wanted to visit him when he was giving a two-month retreat somewhere in Oregon. So after something that happened here, I was teaching, I went down there to Oregon. And I went to see him, and I hadn't seen him for maybe a couple of years, and I said, Say ji that means beloved teacher, I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you." And um, then the translator was there. And I heard some back and forth. And then um, the translator said, Do you want to know what he said? And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I don't know if I want to know what he said. And she said to me, He said, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful, and so that was one of his ways of saying it's your work, it's not my work, and um, it's one of the great gifts that he gave me, and also Manindraji gave me that. And and one of the things that you know, like Jack Cornfield said to me a long time ago, your problem is going to be that you want to take care of people, and I said, you don't know me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to take, I really don't take that on. (laughs) Um, I may be kind and connecting and all of that, but I really leave people to do their own unfolding. And so this is a story about a butterfly that talks about that. A compassionate person seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help very gently loosened the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed, emerged from the cocoon, and fluttered about, but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not know was only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. So watch out, I'm going to make you go through your own suffering. (laughs) So let's sit for a moment and let those words dissolve. Thank you for listening.